Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. Thank you so much, Doug, for um, remembering the, the significance of this day. I had lost sight of that. I didn't realize that it's been exactly a year since the last time, since the first time that I came here um, while you were in the midst of a pastoral search and um, going through the, that transition period. It's really great to be back here with you and to see how the Lord has brought you through that transition period into this new season. Praise God for his faithfulness. Praise God for his faithfulness. Um, our church, my church that, that I, I serve, New Hope Fellowship, is very grateful for the gospel partnership that we get to share with you because we get to serve God and his kingdom in the very same little corner of his kingdom, say in the same place, Tarrytown and the, and the Westchester County area. Um, our, our youth group has, has been blessed to enjoy fellowship and time with your youth group. And um, I've gotten to spend just a little bit of time with, uh, with Pastor Nathan since he, since he got here, and I'm looking forward to spending more time with him and getting to know him better and seeing how the Lord can uh, weave our lives together as local churches to help us serve him. Yeah, what a blessed thing it is to, to gather and worship with you. I want to turn your attention to this passage right here. It sits right in the middle of Psalm 73. And it reads, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. This is one of the Bible's great declarations of love and singular devotion to God. These words mean, the, the, the author who wrote them is saying, God, you're all I have and you're all I want. These are the words of a true believer. A man by the name of Asaph, he was someone who knew that God is good. But when we read the rest of the psalm, we find out that Asaph wasn't always so sure that God was good. We find that in the past, his faith was in fact threatened. And he found himself wondering, is God really good? Is God worth trusting? Is he worth obeying? Is God worth it? That's the question that the psalm drives us to ask, honestly and thoughtfully. And so I invite you to ask this question. Don't assume that you know the answer already. Let's ask it together. Is God worth it? In other words, does following God really pay off? Or is following God really a waste of my life? Would I be better off finding something else to pursue, something else to center my life on? I wonder if anyone has ever asked this question, is God worth it? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever wondered if following Jesus was really paying off? If you have asked this question, then you are in good company because Asaph asked it too. And Asaph was a true believer. Asaph wrote part of the Bible, so that's a pretty high standard. And yet he asked this question. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, May I ask, is it perhaps because you're still wondering if following God is worth it? Maybe you've heard something of what it means to believe in him and to follow him, but you're wondering, does he really deserve my trust? Is he worth it? 
So the writer of Psalm 73 struggled and wrestled with this question and with these doubts, but he didn't just ignore those questions and doubts. Instead, he confronted them head on. And it's through the process of wrestling with and honestly doing so with, the, with this question that he finally concluded without doubt, yes, God is worth it. And I hope that we come to the same conclusion today if we haven't already. The psalmist came to the conclusion that no pursuit and no person and no purpose in this life even comes close to comparing to God. He realized that nothing else in life deserved his devotion and trust. That's where he landed. But we need to see how he got there and honestly ask that question with him. Is God worth it? And you know, this is the perfect place for us to ask such a question. And we're going to see why a little later. Over the course of the psalm, the psalmist goes through a few phases, and they're going to they're going to be the, the headings for this message. He goes from comparing and complaining to regretting and rethinking until eventually he arrives at realizing and repenting. So let's start at the beginning and let's walk through the psalm. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up. We're going to project some of these uh, passages up here. But the reason I invite you to open up a Bible is because it'll help you to see how this psalm fits together, to see the progression of thought and emotion for this, that, this, that, that this man Asaph expresses. So he starts out by comparing and complaining. Verse 1 of this passage is another great declaration, of, a confident declaration in the goodness of God. Look what it says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are, in, who are pure in heart. In other words, God is good to his people. Amen. But, but again, there's a point when this author really wondered if that was true. He may have even sung those words while in the back of his, his mind wondering, is it really true? Is he always good? Sometimes it doesn't feel like he's being good. He's going to tell us the story of how he began to doubt the goodness of God. Look at verse 2. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Imagine hiking a trail in uh, Acadia National Park or, or somewhere else, and, and you're, you're, you're hiking along the edge of a cliff. And you know that, that even a, a minor slip might take you over the edge. The psalmist describes himself that way. He's saying there was a point when I was on the edge, I, I almost lost my faith. I almost slipped and fell into complete unbelief. And he goes on to tell us how that happened. For, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see what happened? He started comparing his life to the lives of others, and he began to envy what he saw. And what he specifically began to envy was the prosperity of the wicked. That word's an important word. The Hebrew word for prosperity there is actually shalom. Shalom. Some of us may be familiar with that Hebrew word. It's an important Bible word. Often in the Bible, it's translated as peace. And maybe that's what we usually think of when we think of shalom. We think peace. But here it's translated as prosperity. And both those words, peace and prosperity, they both capture some aspects of what shalom means. But shalom is a rich word. It's a deep word. It means something like completeness. Shalom means something like wholeness. It means to be good, to be well in every possible way. So the psalmist is looking at the lives of these people. He calls them, quote-unquote, 
the wicked. We'll see they are people that he observes who, who ignore God. Maybe they reject God. They dismiss God's commandments. We'll see, according to his description, these are ruthless people. These are self-seeking, self-promoting people. But the psalmist says, their lives are so full. They're prospering. He says, they have shalom. And in the following verses, he goes on to say that these people, they live pain-free lives. They're well-fed. He uses the word fat. That was a compliment. In ancient times, if most people are going hungry, if you're eating well, you're fortunate, you're blessed. (laughs) These people are full. Their lives are trouble-free, he says. They have everything. And look, and look, rather than make them grateful, he says, it only made them more arrogant and abusive. Verse 6, he says, therefore, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. In other words, they flaunt their sin like jewelry on a a red carpet. They scoff and speak with malice. They loftily threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, which could also be translated, they talk as if they rule in heaven. In other words, they walk and talk as if they are gods. They walk and they talk with arrogant swagger and their lives are full. They have everything. So you can tell that this image of unjust, self-seeking people had consumed the psalmist's mind. He he could probably think of names to go along with this description. He probably had some real-life examples in mind. I wonder if you have some real-life examples in mind as you think about self-seeking, self-promoting, arrogant People who live as if there is no God, or perhaps even live as if they were God. Anyone you know fit that description? Maybe, maybe you don't know them personally, but you've seen them on media, social media. You've seen them on television, perhaps. I wonder, do you ever compare your lives to theirs? The psalmist did. And what we find out is that comparing your lives to anyone's lives can be very dangerous. Comparison can be very dangerous. And so often it leads to envy and to what the Bible calls coveting. And in some instances, it may even go beyond that. Notice two other things that comparing does here. Here are two things that comparing does. And see if this resonates, if you've seen this in your own life. Comparing yourself with others leads you to exaggerate how good others have it. The psalmist says, these people, they live pain-free lives. Their lives are perfect. Are they really? Really? No problems at all. No disappointments. See, the fact is that life for those who reject God is never really as attractive as their lifestyle may seem to indicate. And no matter whose life you're comparing your own to, their life may look wonderful on the outside, but you know that there's trouble. You know that there's suffering and disappointment in their lives. But but when we get caught up in comparing, we we tend to forget that. We just see the good, and we think, I want that. I want that. Comparing tends to exaggerate how good others have it, but also it tends to warp your perspective on what really matters. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. 
Look at what the psalmist is envying here. He summarizes it in verse 12. He says, these people are always at ease and they increase in riches. So what he's saying is, here's what I want that they have, comfort and wealth. They've got it, I want it. Now, Asaph was a wise man, a man who worshiped and knew the living God. At other times in his life, I think it's safe to say that Asaph probably would have said, comfort and wealth are not what life is about. Comfort and wealth comes and goes. Comfort and wealth is of no eternal value. I don't want to live for comfort and wealth. I want to live for something bigger and better than that. That's the way he would have spoken when he was in his right mind. But when he starts comparing his life to others, all of a sudden, comfort and wealth start looking pretty good. And now he focuses on it and he says, that's what true shalom is. That's what true wholeness and peace consist in comfort and wealth. And he's begun to long for it. He wasn't longing for it until he started comparing and envying. Perhaps you can relate to that. I certainly can. I have visited places um, that I can never afford to live. And as I've looked around at those places, I've started to realize that what I cared about and what I wanted in life began to change. Like the things that I didn't care about so much before, when I started to see them, now my heart started to long. I started to see, you see the cars and the houses and the, the affluence. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, man, I didn't realize how much I needed all that stuff until I started looking at it closely. I remember as a young man going to the mall, when people used to still shop in malls. I don't know if people still shop in malls anymore. But I remember I'd go to the mall and I'd drive home thinking, I didn't realize how much new stuff I needed until I got there and walked around for 30 minutes. My life feels so empty now. I want to fill it with all these things that I didn't even know mattered until I saw them. Comparison can be dangerous. That's why he says, my feet almost slipped. You see, we can stumble so easily from comparison into envy and covetousness, that longing for what we don't have. It can happen so quickly. You know what can happen about as quickly as, it, as, 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 as fast as it takes you to scroll through someone's Instagram and you see their perfect family or you see their perfect vacation or you see their perfect body and you start thinking, why them? How about me? How come I don't get to have this stuff? How come my life doesn't look like theirs? I, I read about a study recently that, that concluded that watching HGTV, you guys are familiar with HGTV? Watching HGTV apparently leads to heightened depression <laughs> and anxiety. <laughs> no surprise, right? Why? Because you're looking at the beauty of what others have and you're wondering, why, why not me? Why do I have to live here? The psalmist goes from comparing to complaining. Eventually, he begins regretting and rethinking. Here's what I mean. Regretting and rethinking. Verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, comparison can cause you to start regretting your choices in life. <laughs> it can cause you to start rethinking your life. 
That's what the psalmist did. You, you, let's say, for instance, you look at your friend who has whatever it is that you want. Maybe you are single and you'd like to be married and your, your friend is married. Or maybe your friend is successful and you, you're not successful. Or maybe your friend is just well-liked by everybody and you're not so well-liked. Or you see some stranger on social media who looks happier than you or wealthier than you and you begin to think, maybe I should have made some different decisions in life. How did I get here? I made some choices along the way and I thought they were wise, but look at where they got me. His decisions, her decisions have taken them to a much better place. Maybe I should have made some different choices. Well, in this case, comparing and, 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 and complaining has led this psalmist to question his very commitment to God. He starts to wonder, why did I choose to follow God? What has it really gotten me? What's the point of trusting him? What's the point of obeying him if my life isn't even as good as, as those of, 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 of people who reject him and ignore him? They have better lives than I do. What's the point? Maybe it's been a mistake to follow him all along. He doesn't stay there, though, the psalmist, in this place of regretting and rethinking. He's jolted out of that state, and he comes to a point of finally realizing and repenting. Realizing and repenting. And by repenting, I mean he he has a, a change of mind and a change of direction, a change of perspective. You see, he reaches a turning point when he begins to realize that his thinking was all wrong all along. He changes his mind. This is, he realized he was way off all along. He says it in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went to the, into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Their end. Notice there's this moment of realization for Asaph. His circumstances, by the way, had not changed. He hadn't come upon some money or come upon some good fortune Nothing had really changed. The only thing that changed was his focus. His eyes turned away from the temporary, and he started looking at the the more permanent, the, the eternal. He says, I saw their end. I'd been focusing on their current circumstances, but, but now I'm looking at where, where they will end up. And he, and he stopped looking at just their present experience, the, these people that he envied, and he looked at where they were headed. And he finally saw that what he was envying was, in fact, not shalom. He realized that what he was envying was not true shalom. It's true that some folks who ignore and reject God may have influence and money and comfort. Maybe some of you would say, I I might have more influence and money and comfort if I rejected God and his ways. But the psalmist says in verse 18, he says, you have placed them on a slippery places. You have set them in slippery places. It's, it's a callback to that earlier verse. Verse 2. Before he said, I, was, I felt like I was going to slip off the edge into unbelief. But he's saying, these people who I'm envying, who I think have it all, actually they're in a very slippery place in a very dangerous place. They're the ones who are actually on the precipice and about to tumble into ruin. Verse 19 says, how they are destroyed in a moment. 
sobering words, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. I realize now that no matter what present abundance anyone enjoys, everyone who rejects God will ultimately experience destruction. This is what, this is what he finally comes to, to remember. He realized that what makes their lives enviable will in fact disappear like a dream in the morning. You ever wake up in the morning, you've had a wonderful dream, but you can't remember it? Or maybe you can remember pieces of it, but when you try to piece it together in your head, it's like it slips away, slips away. The longer it takes, it's gone. Swept away. So is the comfort and the affluence and the apparent counterfeit shalom of those who reject God. This means a couple of things. For one thing, it means that there will be justice. Genesis 18 asks the question, will not the judge of the earth do what is right, do what is just? And the psalmist finally realized that the answer is a resounding yes. And this realization led him to repent. That is, it led him to change direction. Verse 21 says, when my soul was embittered, when I was panicked in heart, pricked in heart, I should say. In, in other words, he's saying, I, I was discouraged, I was resentful as I looked around. I was like a beast towards you, he says. I was brutish and ignorant. In other words, I looked at my own suffering, I looked at my own pain, I looked at how good other people seemed to have it, and I responded like an idiot, Lord. Oh, I was so dumb. Until, until I entered your sanctuary. Until I entered your sanctuary, he says. And then I came to my senses. Now, as we close here, I would like to encourage you to think about what it means when he says, I entered into your sanctuary. I entered into the sanctuary of God. What does that mean? I mentioned at the outset of this message that this worship service is the perfect place for us to ask the question, is God worth it? Here's why. Because it was in the process of worshiping that the psalmist finally came to his senses. The, the sanctuary of God was the very place where God would meet his people. The sanctuary of God in Old Testament language means the place where God's presence was known and real and felt. It's where God would show up to meet with his people. And so at the time of when Asaph wrote this psalm, it would have been the tabernacle. The tabernacle was before the temple of, of uh, the, the Jewish temple was built, there was a tabernacle, which was a, a great tent of, of meeting, a large tent for gathering. It was a holy place. And in the holiest part of that holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was, the, it was called the holiest of holies, the holiest part of that holy gathering space. In there, there was a, the Ark of the Covenant, two tablets of the law with the commandments of God, engraved on them. There would have been in that holiest of holy places in the sanctuary of God, there would have been an altar of sacrifice where, where animal offerings were made. And there was a place called the mercy seat in there. It's where blood would have been sprinkled on the day of atonement. Basically, all of these things, the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the law, the mercy seat, all of these things, the altar itself, they were all signs of God's covenant promises to his people. 
And there were signs of God's covenant curses to those who rejected. So, so what you would find when you went into the sanctuary in the tabernacle is these, these reminders of God's law on the one hand, but of God's grace as well. You know what you come to terms with when you go into the sanctuary and you would see, and, and Asaph, some believe that Asaph was actually a priest, which means that he would have access not only to the tabernacle, which all of God's people could go into, but he had access to the holiest of holies, the inner sanctuary, so to speak. When you go into that inner sanctuary, you'd come to, come to terms, come face to face with the fact that God is holy. And I'm wicked. Like I'm looking around, I look at people and I, and I consider them wicked. I say, oh, they're so self-centered, so evil, and they're so abusive and so arrogant. When we, when we get into the place of worship, into the sanctuary, we start to realize, I'm not so different. In fact, every time sacrifices need to be offered to pay for sin in the sanctuary, it's not just for the sins of those quote-unquote wicked people out there. I need my sins atoned for. I need sacrifice. I need, I need blood to be shed to pay for my failures, for my self-centeredness, for my arrogance, for my self-seeking, self-promoting wickedness. But when you come into the sanctuary, you'd also recognize that there is mercy and there's forgiveness for wicked people. <laughs> the reminders in there, not only of God's law, but of God's grace. You'd be reminded that when, when every time an animal was sacrificed, it was a reminder that God, God is willing to forgive. God is willing to cleanse. God is willing to accept wicked people. That's all, some, I believe, of what Asaph came face to face with when he entered the sanctuary. Now, for us as believers and followers of Jesus, in 2023, there's no tabernacle for us. There's no physical tabernacle for us to gather in. But we do gather, don't we? We do gather to hear and read of God's and sing of God's covenant promises, don't we? We gather to hear and read and sing of his law and his grace, of his mercy, of his promises. And, and as Grace reminded us earlier, he promises that he will meet with us, he will be present with us when we gather to worship him. So here's my point. I know I'm taking long to get there, but here's my point. We are in the sanctuary. We are in a holy place. We don't need any more blood sacrifices to be offered here, but we do get to celebrate the once for all sacrifice of Jesus that atoned for the sins of everyone who believe in him. You see, every time that we gather as God's people to worship in his presence, he promises to be there with us. And no matter whether it's here at, what's the address here, 56 South Broadway or 42 North Broadway, or it could be at, at, at the diner across the street or at the coffee house down on Main, Main Street, wherever it is that you gather with God's people to worship, to approach him, he promises to be there with you, and you are in the sanctuary. You are in the holy presence of God. You see, what makes this place a sanctuary, you might call this a sanctuary, but what makes this a sanctuary is not the stained glass and the beautiful architecture. What makes this a sanctuary is the people of God meeting with God himself, his presence with us. In gathered worship, we are entering the sanctuary. 
Now, it's true that we can worship God on our own as well, and I hope you do worship God on your own. I hope you meet with God, and that is the sanctuary as well. But I'm, I'm pointing to us to, to this specific sanctuary here, the gathering of God's people every time, for instance, you share in communion together and you eat the bread and you drink the cup. You remember his body offered up and his blood spilt to forgive and cleanse you from sin. And he promises to be there in that ordinance with you. Every time we lift up our voices and as Grace reminded us, our, our hearts and minds sink together in unified praise to God. He meets with us and he reminds us of his covenant promises. He reminds us of what real shalom is. You see, gathered worship is where we encounter the presence of God together. Gathered worship like this every Sunday is where together we're reminded of what is real, of what really matters. We're reminded that Christ died in our place to atone for all our sin and failures. We're reminded that we don't deserve what we have any more than the quote-unquote wicked do, whoever they are. We're reminded that we're not entitled that everything we have from God is grace, free, all gifts. Gathered worship is where we are confronted with reality. Gathered worship is where we can get shaken out of our comparing and complaining and regretting and rethinking. We can get awoken out of that to gaze upon the reality of who God is and what he's done for us. Gathered worship is where we can bring our doubts. I hope you bring your doubts and your struggles into gathered worship. You ever walk into a worship gathering, like this for instance, and you come in burdened with doubts about the goodness of God because of the way your life is going, because of what you're experiencing, the suffering, the pain, the disappointment. But in the process of singing, with your brothers and sisters, in the presence of the Lord. Has your mind ever been changed? Have your doubts ever been spoken to? Have you ever walked out of a gathering on Sunday believing the gospel more than when you walked in? More joyful than when you walked in? With a different perspective? Like certain things were burdening you and mattered so much when you walked in, but when you're walking out, those things seem to matter a little bit less. And your eternal hope in Christ means everything. Gathered worship is where our minds are renewed and our doubts are settled. It's where we get together and we declare with one voice, yes, God is worth it. You see, in the sanctuary, this man was confronted with the infinite value, the worth of knowing God personally. And he realized that that was better than all the other things that he was envying. It's funny, you know, when he was, um, when Asaph was comparing himself to other people, he lists some of the things that they have. They have affluence, they have comfort, they have no problems, they're well-fed. They, he names all the things they have. But when he finally comes to his senses and starts looking at what he has, he doesn't list any things. All he lists again and again is, you, God. You, God. I have you. Verse 23. He says that even if I suffer and it hurts, he says, I'm with you. You hold my hand. You guide me. And when I die, you'll receive me. You are my portion forever, he says. 
You see, when he was comparing and complaining, he named so many things. But now when he's shaken out of that, he's not naming things. He's just looking at God and saying, you're all I have, but you're all I need. In fact, you're all I want. He could have listed some of the good things he had in life. I'm sure he did have some good things. He could have said, Lord, thank you for my family and thank you for my home. Thank you for the food. He could have listed many good things, but he doesn't. Instead, he's just completely absorbed with you. I get you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you ever found yourself wondering, is God worth it? If you, if you haven't ever wondered, maybe one day you might. <laughs> this psalmist was convinced of God's goodness until one day he wasn't. But know this, know this. What you have in Jesus is real, and it's worth more than all the world. And it's permanent. For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. It is shalom. It is true peace, true wholeness. Simply be near to God, to be in relationship with my maker, who is now my father through faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't come to trust and follow this God, please consider carefully the observations of the psalmist. Because we're all, every day we're being told what is of most value. We're being told what we should really care about, what we should chase, what we should accumulate, what we should live for. We are constantly being told what shalom is and what it looks like. But if the good things that we are chasing, if the good things that you are chasing and the good things that you are banking on are all temporary, you're being misled. You're being offered a, a fake, phony shalom. Jesus once asked, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's not worth it. That's not worth it. But what God offers us is lasting. If you trust him, there will be suffering, no doubt. There will be doubts, no doubt. But finally, you will testify with the psalmist that it was all worth it, that he is worth it. As I close, I'll bring us back to the verse we started with. Maybe it means something a little different to us. Maybe we get a, a new, fuller perspective on it, having seen how the psalmist got there. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You see, what the psalmist realizes here is that God isn't just better than what this world has to offer. God is the best of what heaven has to offer. Here's why I mention that. Do you ever, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you ever find yourself longing for heaven? Longing for the reality of a renewed world where all has been made right? If you find yourself longing for heaven as I do, what do you long for? I find that, that the things that I tend to long for is I, I long for an existence where there is no more pain, no more suffering. No more sin. No more loss. No more death. Those are the things my heart longs for. The psalmist is saying, yes, all of that is good. But you know what the best thing that heaven has to offer? It's not the absence of evil. It's the very presence of God himself. And so this challenges us. 
It raises the question for us, what even now in this life, not even thinking about heaven, not even thinking about internal future, thinking about right now, what is it that I really want from God? Is it, what is it that I value for? Is it him or is it the things that I hope he gives me? Is he what you're after? His acceptance, his love, his presence, because those are all the things that are guaranteed you in Jesus. He's promised all that to you. You can have it through faith in Christ. But, but, is what you're after um, other stuff, like wealth and influence and approval and all the things that so many of us spend our lives chasing. If that's what you're really after and your hope is that God will give you those things, what if he decides not to give them to you? What if he decides to withhold influence and wealth and comfort from you? What if he withholds the approval of people from you? Will he still be worth following? Will he still be worth it to you? Asaph had to be honest with himself about that question, and I think we need to be honest with ourselves about that question too. And the crazy reality is that it is better to have God and nothing else than to have everything without him. We lose perspective on that, don't we? especially when we start looking at other people and comparing, looking at social media, and we start to get those, the, those images of, of phony shalom, fleeting shalom. The antidote to that, church, the antidote is worship. Solitary worship and gathered worship. Sustained focus on who God is and what he has done and what he says to us. That is the antidote to dissatisfaction. It's the antidote to envy and to doubt it's all to be found in the sanctuary, church. We need more time in the sanctuary where we see what is true and timeless and what is real shalom. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you so much for welcoming us into the sanctuary, into your presence as your people to worship you and to be shaken out of our depressed, doubting, envying, restlessness. Confront us with the beauty of who you are and all of what we have in you as shared heirs with Jesus. We ask that the declaration of Asaph, you're all I have and you're all I want, would be our declaration all our days. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.